Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. I need a less abrupt end to that. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, we plan to talk to Terry Kamenin, the author of Lives Per Gallon, The True Cost of Our Oil Addiction. And we also hope to chat with Stephen Mansfield, author of a book titled The Faith of Barack Obama. Today is Wednesday, the 10th of December, and this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I'm joined tonight by the usual crew, that is BC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson, and BC Magazine's executive editor, Lisa McKay. Hello to both of you. Greetings. We always talk at the same time, Lisa. We do. That's true. I so, need I need to I need to welcome you one at a time from now on cuz that is we always do that. No, I need to be gentlemanly and let Lisa go first. <laughs> oh, wow, very nice. Don't I? You know, I I want to I want to quickly of you. I, I do want to clear clear something up speaking of Lisa. Um regular listeners may know that at the end of last week's show, uh during last week's show, there was an occasional beeping noise which uh was apparently frequent and irritating enough that it was actually commented on by several people, both in the chat room and live on the air. I suspected it might be related to Bluetooth technology and switched to holding a phone. It was awful. And then at the end, I, I blamed Lisa. And uh, I, you know, I felt I had a little bit of uh, evidence in my favor, but uh, you know, Lisa, Lisa disagreed. Right, right Lisa? I, I did disagree. She was she was pretty vehement in her disagreement in the chat room, but fortunately, I, I as I mentioned, I'm the button pusher, so I had her muted, and nobody heard her disagreement, which which means that if I hadn't mentioned it tonight, then no one would ever know that she was actually um. <clears throat> well, let's see. Uh, how how did the story go, Lisa? Would you would you like to tell it? Uh, I was talking with my son Brian on the phone. I think maybe a day after we did the show. Mm-hmm, that's about right. And he said to me in mid-conversation, what's that beeping noise? <laughs> uh, and I know you find this diabolically funny, but in, in, my own defense, in my own defense, I have to make it very clear that I don't hear the beeping noise ever. What is the beeping noise? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and I should note that no one has mentioned the beeping noise to me since that day. It and, must and be I, a perhaps it was a transient beeping noise. It may have been a transient beeping noise, and Philip will certainly attest to the fact that never before has he heard the beeping noise. That's that's and true. That's true. Phone, this is the same phone I've been calling in on since you know June or July or whenever I got the phone. You know what so, it usually means, that kind of a beeping? It means you're, something's running low. What kind of phone is it? It's an iPhone, and the battery, I always make sure that the battery is charged, you know, like 100% on Wednesdays because I don't want it to sort Absolutely. of you know, run out at 9, 10. <laughs> um, 
so I I don't think it was a low battery beep. And if it was a low battery beep, it would have been kind of pointless anyway, since I'm the person who would need to charge the phone, and I can't hear the beeping. <laughs> yeah, I, I can actually verify that when the iPhone is low on battery, it uh, vibrates and indicates so visually on the screen, but uh, does not beep during a call. Wow, that I, is mysterious then. Yeah, it is, it is pretty weird. But nevertheless, I've just, I tell you, I've been smiling all week since since Lisa confessed uh, that it, it did turn out to exactly be her phone. It was, just, it was the aural equivalent of like a mosquito, you know? It yeah, just kept it buzzing around, we kept swatting at it, you know? Like, what is that damn thing? I blame it entirely on Steve Jobs. I think, oh, there you I go. I think you should. I think you should. Well, tell you what, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get started with the show. Uh, this is BC Radio Live. Uh, we are live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And co-hosting with Eric and Lisa, I am Philip. Our first guest tonight has written a book about oil and our addiction to it, uh, speaking as an American at least. In Lives Per Gallon, The True Cost of Our Oil Addiction, Terry Tamanen outlines a proposal to end our dependence and also just suggests how to move forward with things other than oil. He's got a website, livespergallon.org, and he's also here right now to tell us all about it. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Terry. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Ooh, radio voice guy. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you're special advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger and former head of the California EPA. Well, that and, of course, you don't want to speak with an Austrian accent, so you, you try to speak clearly and concise. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're running for office. Exactly. <laughs> so this is uh, what what I have in front of me. Then is the paperback version. So this is uh, has it been updated since uh, the original version of '06? It has. Uh, there's a foreword which kind of uh, sadly highlights the fact that many of the predictions made in the '06 book, which of course was written in the couple of years prior to the release, sadly many of those things have come true, and uh, I wish in many cases they hadn't. But it also kind of puts a context on uh, things like the war in Iraq and uh, the oil uh, price spikes and, and drops and kind of where all of this might be headed in the next few years. Before we get into we certainly want to talk about the, the particulars and you know details of the book itself, of, of course, and an excellent book it is. And by the way, I'm looking at the cover, and I wanted it, – it, the, the gasoline, I assume, is the substance there. It is so enticing. I want to drink it. Well, hopefully you resist that urge. Uh, it looks like book, apple juice. As the book oh, documents, like, it's toxic stuff. It looks like beer. It, well, or beer. It's not quite <laughs> as bubbly as beer, uh, but but it, it it's enticing indeed. I want to dive in. So anyway, my 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 first question is, uh, our, our most immediate situation. This whole economic, uh, uh, shall we say, downturn to you, <laughs> euphemistically, I suppose. How do you think that's going to fit in in kind of the medium to long run uh, on on helping us or hindering us, you know, to make r fundamental changes in our in our ener in our approach to energy? Well, I mean, certainly when uh, a basic commodity that uh, all businesses and consumers use and rely on and spend so much money on when it goes down so precipitously, especially around the holidays, I guess that's good news. When you're in an economic slump, uh, maybe that gives you a couple extra bucks to go out to dinner or, or buy those Christmas gifts for your family. That might help stimulate the economy 
in other ways. But uh, of course, uh, it, uh, it it doesn't help us uh, in terms of uh, of planning budgets for the future, whether you know the price goes up or down. It certainly doesn't help us in terms of sending a message that this is a valuable commodity we shouldn't be wasting and, and burning right. and creating greenhouse gases. So that's not a good thing. But I, I do think that because of the economic downturn and the, and the lower demand, that's the reason for the price going down and that demand doesn't go up just because the price goes down. People just can't afford to drive. They're not buying new cars. Uh, goods are not being delivered to markets. Uh, so, uh, so the demand uh, being down is, is certainly a good thing. And airline travel. Yeah. One very specific thing, though, um, one of your proposals basically to help end our dependence on foreign oil was to actually, you know, essentially force the, the, the big oil companies to pay to cover the true cost of their business, not just obviously the price of the, the crude oil and the refining and so on, but actually the amount of money that, you know, states and the federal government and regional municipalities spend on dealing with, uh, you know, environmental stuff, pollution stuff, healthcare stuff, all of that. And part of that seems based on, you know, ExxonMobil, for example, reporting record profits quarter after quarter uh, as, as price hit, you know, the price hit, what, $125, $127 a barrel, I think, at its peak. And, and I wonder how much, how much harder is it then to sell this idea of, of, you know, charging ExxonMobil and the other oil companies when uh, one imagines that their profits are going to be considerably smaller at, at $30 a barrel than they were at 127 You know, that's, that's certainly a point, but of course, if they need the whole point of my saying that they should have to internalize those costs of uh, defending oil around the globe, of health care related to burning their products, uh, of, uh, of the uh, tax subsidies that they get right now should be repealed, things like that, uh, that if that cost causes them to either take less profit when times are good or, frankly, raise the, the price of their product when sure. perhaps uh, times are not so good, I analogize it in the book uh, to the tobacco industry. The, the oil right. industry has acted just like the tobacco industry in terms of lying to regulators, manipulating the science, manipulating the products, lying to the public about the health effects. And all of that has led to many of the consequences we face today. So just like tobacco, the idea was to perhaps take these companies to court, force them to internalize some of those costs and disgorge uh, some of their profits. But even if their profits are down, the way that the tobacco companies paid for the huge settlements was to raise the price of their products. And that uh, did have the effect of discouraging more uh, people from smoking. Yeah, the, the parallel to the tobacco industry is great. Um, in part because the, the initial objection is, the di you know, the difference is not everybody smokes, everybody uses oil. But your whole purpose here is to try to break that cycle. And if the price of oil gets high enough, then, you know, maybe we actually have a chance to move past it. Well, that's right. And, I, and I mean, I think it's not even just that if it gets high enough. I mean, we just had experience in the last six months that people are willing to pay as much as $4 a gallon and uh, and not change their driving habits that substantially. So now that it's back down to under $2, so what would be so terrible about uh, if the oil companies had to pay for some of these externalities and uh, and raise their price of, you know, a quarter, a gallon or whatever to uh, uh, to cover that, it, it, it uh, would still not approach where gas prices were before. But again, it would force us all to reckon with the fact that when we go to the pump, the true cost is not $2 a gallon. It's actually about $10 a gallon. As I document in the book, it's the hundreds of billions of dollars in 
subsidies and health care costs and, and defense of oil around the globe and so forth, that when you actually add it up and uh, divide it uh, into the number of Americans, it's $2,700 per man, woman, and child in America every single year in subsidies to the richest uh, uh, enterprises in the history of commerce, hardly, hardly startups that need our help. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a politically hot issue. Al Gore got, you know, ran into a lot of trouble in the 2000 election cycle for, you know, suggesting uh, gas taxes that would push the price of gas up to, I, I think he was proposing somewhere between 4 and $5 a gallon. But as you said, we've just gotten up to, in some areas, more than $4 a gallon, and, and people unbelievably uh, paid it. So, I mean, I, I'm actually, I've actually been a supporter of a, uh, Either a, I think probably better a, a state tax of, of literally you know start off at 25 cents more than now and every six months add another 25 cents so you, you push it up to several dollar per gallon tax. Well, I actually think there's even a simpler way to do it that that might be fair and and uh, it's not even so much uh, that it's a tax it's it's taking what we already have in the tax system and that is indexing. In California mm-hmm. and I know it might be a little different in other states but in California. We pay 18 cents a gallon in state uh, sales taxes and 18 cents uh, roughly in federal uh, taxes. And that doesn't matter if uh, gasoline is $4 or $2. So if you indexed it, if you did just like uh, sales tax, you know, when the price of bread, when the price of, uh, of a car goes up and you have to pay sales tax, if the price of a car today is $22,000 and 15 years ago that same car was $11,000, uh, well, uh, back in the you know years ago, when you paid that lower price, you paid you know seven percent sales tax or eight percent. Uh, and today, if you pay seven or eight percent, it's obviously on the on the higher number. Well, we don't do that indexing. Uh, it's not based on a percent. It's based on that eighteen cents, which is ridiculous. If it was you know uh, uh, say five percent or just a sales tax, whatever is equal to the sales tax. Um, that would then obviously mean when, when the prices are low, there's not quite as much money coming in, but when demand goes up, there's an automatic trigger that also makes the, the tax revenues go up, which allow you to invest in alternatives or perhaps uh, it dissuades people from using quite so much. Excuse me. <coughs> I was just <laughs> struck by <coughs> brilliance and it made me cough. One of the core elements of back to being um, able to speak again. Sound like my mother. Good God. Uh, One of the core elements of the book is you track a single drop of oil from ground to gas tank. Why don't you lead us through that? I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, it's an obstacle course where it's remarkable that the final drop actually gets into your tank and gets combusted. But what happens is, of course, a drop of oil starts its life in the ground and gets dug out, and uh, much of it gets spilled um, or, or consumed in one way or another before it gets into a pipeline or a tanker. We all know that when the tankers head for the refineries, they spill. <clears throat> We've all heard about the Exxon Valdez and other really big iconic oil spills but we have the equivalent of about three of those every single year when you take together all of the smaller spills so it's kind of like a a drunken cocktail waiter trying to get through a crowded bar uh, with a tray of drinks and all of them are spilling by the time you get there you've lost quite a bit 
and uh, and then uh, it gets to refineries very often from the from the dock. It goes through other pipelines which leak very often with catastrophic consequences when things ignite. And I talk about that in the book, not just in in our country, but certainly in in third world countries where a lot of the crude oil comes from Ecuador, Nigeria, places like that. Um, entire villages being consumed by fire and pollution and so forth. Um, and then it gets to the refinery where even more gets spilled. The largest oil spill in, in history is not the Exxon Valdez or the Santa Barbara blowout in 1969 that led to the creation of the modern environmental movement. It was, in fact, 252 million gallons of petroleum products leaked from a Chevron refinery near Los Angeles into the groundwater, and most of that is still there in, in water that would otherwise be available for use by the city of Los Angeles as drinking water. And then, of course, uh, more spills getting it to the to the gas station, uh, and then I'm sure all of us have been at the gas station where, you know, a lot of it drips off the nozzle or, you know, spills when we overfill something, and, uh, of course, it drips out of our cars. If you've ever looked at the parking lot after you've pulled away, it might be your car, it might be your neighbor's car, but you see oil and gasoline and other things dripped on the ground or on the highway. And, of course, when it rains, all that goes right into our rivers and into the ocean and so forth. Um, and then, of course, finally, that drop of oil, if it does actually make it all the way from the ground in places like Saudi Arabia or Ecuador and finally gets into your gas tank to be combusted, um, it actually gets broken down into very toxic products that end up in our lungs. And uh, uh, and uh, and so there's, there's really no good part of that journey um, that, uh, that that oil has. Wow. <laughs> That's grim indeed. The, the amazing part, actually, to me, is that despite all of the spillage and the wasting uh, that you describe, it still is, uh, I paid less than a buck fifty a gallon yesterday. Well, and, and, that's, and that's maybe, you know, I mean, even a, a high price when you think about what it actually costs to make it. Um, sure. The last time I looked a couple of years ago, it was costing about 3 to $4 a barrel to, uh, to get the oil out of the ground, at least in places like Saudi Arabia and the parts of the United States where we still drill for oil. It's not very expensive to, to dig it out of the ground. Now, you know, the tar sands in Alberta and uh, deep sea uh, depositories that are being exploited now as we get more and more desperate uh, do take more energy and therefore cost more to get the oil out of the ground, but there's still quite a lot of, uh, of the oil we're using at least today that uh, is still only 3 to 4 or $5 a, a barrel to, to get out of the ground and get into a ship at least to send it off to, to a refinery. And, uh, uh, you know, a barrel at, uh, at 50 gallons or so, uh, half of that ends up uh, as, as various types of fuels, so you can do the math. At, at, uh, of course, you've got to go through a refinery and transport it. There's a lot of costs added along the way. But the raw material, when, once this thing is delivered to you, the, the actual cost for the raw material is, is a pretty uh, trivial amount of that total cost. Okay, so we, we, we're aware of, of all these issues and, uh, and some new ones that I wasn't aware of. I, I, I certainly had no idea there was that much lost and that much spillage and that much waste and, and that – of course, all of that ultimately ends up uh, either in the ground or in the water or, or in the air, none, none of which is particularly good. Uh, so what do we do? How do we solve this? I, I notice you end your, uh, your new preface with a, a very timely analogy to, <laughs> to a Christmas carol uh, for this time of year. You know, how, do we, how do we wake up uh, a la Scrooge and, and change our ways? 
You know, uh, the the book uh, with a title like Lives Per Gallon, that's an ominous title, but I like to say it has a happy ending. Uh, in the book I talk about, of course, I mean, one way, as, I, as we've talked about, is to force oil companies, as we did with tobacco companies, to internalize some costs and then use that to pay back uh, taxpayers for the health care costs and some of these other externalities and perhaps even to invest in alternatives. But uh, the other way is to invent and invest our way out of this. <clears throat> I talk about not only uh, more fuel-efficient cars that, that use gasoline, but but also biofuels and actually even back before we kind of discredited corn-based ethanol by trial and error, I talked about it in the book, uh, that it is not going to be a long-term solution. It's, it's you know, right. certainly better. We're not killing farmers in Kansas to get a supply of corn, but, but at the end of the day, once we refine it and put it in our cars, it's not really that much cleaner uh, than petroleum. Um, but, you know, it's, it's better, and certainly things like natural gas, battery electrics all have potential. Uh, my belief is that the one big uh, paradigm shift comes from hydrogen, and I drive a hydrogen fuel cell-powered car, uh, the hydrogen that I drive on comes from solar power electricity, and uh, the electricity is used to break hydrogen out of water with electrolysis. So you pass a little electricity through water, it breaks the hydrogen out of the water. And, uh, and you can even do that with uh, treated wastewater. So uh, sewage water that we would otherwise throw away, you can actually harvest the hydrogen out of it and uh, put it in your car. So there really there are alternatives. Um, we could, in fact, be 100% energy independent or certainly independent of oil uh, in a very short period of time because you can actually combust hydrogen. All the cars on the road today could be converted to run on hydrogen. It's not the most efficient use, but, uh, but you could do it. And certainly you could start uh, developing and, and promoting uh, fuel cells, which are extremely efficient, uh, like the car that I drive, and, uh, and really have the potential to uh, to create a homegrown Saudi Arabia in terms of the fuel and re-energize our car companies all in one fell swoop. Why haven't we done that yet? Well, you know, change is difficult. It's the old battleship analogy or aircraft carrier analogy that even when you turn the wheel, uh, it takes a while for that thing to start turning. Uh, it takes crises like the, the $147 a barrel oil this past summer, and uh, the economic downturn uh, right now. By the way, I think those two are, are very related. Not, to, you know, I'm not saying that that was the sole cause, but certainly that uh, that added fuel to the fire, if you pardon the pun. And uh, and uh, certainly the economic crisis we're going through now with the car companies with their tin cups out and everyone recognizing that they got themselves into this position. Um, you know, there's uh, 1973, those of us old enough to remember the Arab oil embargo and standing in lines uh, to get fuel, uh, when that was over, and it was an artificial shortage, of course, geopolitical one, uh, when that was over, everyone went back to their profligate ways, but the Japanese started selling fuel-efficient cars while Japan was, uh, uh, you know, eating our lunch, they, uh, uh, General Motors and Ford and Chrysler were, were making huge cars with fins, and, you know, obviously that became SUVs, and the net result is that in that 30-some years, uh, Japan has gone from uh, less than 20% of the car market here to now more than 50%, and uh, other foreign imports, and, of course, Toyota has, has overtaken General Motors as the world's largest car maker. So it's, it's not that it's just the economic downturn. It's, it's the bad decisions of our car makers, as I outline in the book. And, uh, and the, you know, they buy and pay for the decisions that get made in Washington. Um, and, uh, and, you know, congressmen like uh, John Dingell of Michigan, who thinks he's protecting the industry, is protecting it out of, out of business. 
So I, I do think, you know, it's going to be up to, unfortunately right now, probably Congress and the next administration to force change. But as I mentioned, I'm driving a hydrogen fuel cell car. It's made by Honda. I wish it were made by Ford or General Motors. But uh, once again, uh, the foreign automakers, including the Chinese, will be producing these products and delivering them to our showrooms long before anyone from Detroit will do that. How much of the the lack of a real solution do you think is due to lack of vision on the part of our of, of our in, you know our industry leaders, our governmental leaders? I, it just it just seems I, I guess when I talk to people about um, you know getting out of the oil business, it's something I, I got quite interested in a couple of years ago and have been evangelizing my friends. Um, uh, ad nauseum, a lot of it just seems to be that people cannot imagine that you can take a country of 350 million people with, what, 700 million cars and and make it all change overnight. And if it can't happen overnight, I think people just, like, they, they can't wrap their brain around it. How did you manage to um, overcome that in, in California? Well, you're right. It is vision. I mean, uh, uh, some of us had the right ideas. We brought them to uh, most recently, uh, not exclusively, but most recently to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he campaigned on that in 2003 and became governor, and we created the Million Solar Roof Plan. We now have, uh, you know, we're approaching as much solar in California as they have in, in Germany and Japan and some of the other leading solar countries. We, uh, we have uh, uh, the Hydrogen Highway Program, which... Uh, uh, we now have 30 commercial hydrogen fueling stations in partnership with uh, Shell and Chevron and some of the other big oil companies, actually, uh, and uh, with the Department of Energy and others to prove the technology. We've got the cars here as a result of that, kind of breaking that chicken or the egg situation. Uh, again, it's vision. You've got to bring people together because the car companies said, well, we're not going to make the cars if there's no fueling infrastructure. And the energy companies said, we don't want to build fueling stations if there's no vehicles. So we brought them all in a room, literally 200 stakeholders from science and politics and, and companies and got them to agree on a blueprint. We're building out those stations now. We'll have uh, about 100 in the state by 2010, which is actually enough then to drive anywhere in the state and refuel with hydrogen. So that will help uh, the car companies bring more vehicles and then the, you know, the stations will kind of take care of themselves as, as demand increases. We're also facilitating with uh, things like as a result of wanting to do this, uh, uh, changing laws so that people can make their own fuel. Um, in March, I'll have a hydrogen home fueler, which I'll attach to the solar panels on my roof and uh, electrolyze uh, wastewater, gray water, from my kitchen or shower, and uh, that'll create hydrogen that I'll put in my car. So, uh, you know, and Honda, once again, we talk about vision. In this case, it's it's uh, commercial vision. Honda doesn't think we're going to need all that many fueling stations because they think in the future companies like them will make appliances just like they make generators and other appliances right now and that everyone will have a home fueler. And unless you're going on a long trip, you won't need gas stations. So the, the paradigm is shifting. Uh, there, there are companies and, and leaders with vision. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, think back 100 years ago when it was mostly horses and buggies. Can you name a company that manufactured buggies or horse whips? I can't. And I suspect that, you know, even 20 or 30 years from now, the next generation won't remember the name GM or Ford, but they will remember the name Tesla or, you know, uh, maybe it's Cherry Motors from, uh, from China that will be delivering uh, hydrogen cars and, and battery electric cars and other transportation of the future. 
So do you think it's going to be a lot easier uh, as California ramps up, say, over the next, uh, I guess you've got about two more years to get up to really full speed. Do you think it's going to be easier at that point for it to spread to other states? It's already happening. In the last two years, I've helped uh, uh, 30 other states develop uh, uh, responses to the climate challenge and, and come up with policies that uh, that encourage more renewables like solar and wind and set targets for reducing greenhouse gases. Uh, we just actually had a big summit here in Los Angeles about three weeks ago where President-elect Obama delivered his message in support of all of that work that the states are doing and setting his commitment to uh, to match what the states are doing in terms of reducing greenhouse gases 80% by 2050 um, and, uh, and, and on the path to that, uh, getting back to the 1990 levels by, by 2020. So he, he set his goals out, and that's all driving much of this. And so not only does California demonstrate it and then other states uh, come to see it, but the rest of the world does. So by 2010, when the Olympics in, in uh, the Winter Olympics are being held in British Columbia, right outside of Vancouver at Whistler, uh, we hope to have the hydrogen highway go all the way from Tijuana all the way up to Vancouver, so B.C. to B.C., Baja, California to uh, British Columbia. And there will be stations in all three states, and uh, plus Mexico and British Columbia. Uh, there's already, a, again, a patchwork of, of stations uh, now, but we'll connect all those dots so you'll be able to drive north to south. Governor Schwarzenegger plans to lead a caravan driving from, from you know south all the way up to north to the Olympics to prove it. And you'll see similar programs going on in Florida. There's a hydrogen program in, in Michigan, ironically, with, with Detroit. Uh, there's a good one. Ohio, there's uh, Connecticut. So a lot of the states are beginning to do this, and I think we'll, in the next few years, realize the benefits of connecting the dots and doing it nationwide. Well, wow, that's a good place to end, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I, will, I will leave you, by the way, with one note, uh, Terry. Uh, if you haven't seen the new James Bond movie, you should be aware uh, at least one of the scriptwriters apparently not a fan of hydrogen fuel cells. I I did see that, and I have to tell you, I laugh all the time. If you saw Terminator 3, there's a scene yes. where he pulls a, a, a hydrogen fuel cell out of his chest, and he says, "Oh, this is defective," and he throws it out the window, and you see an explosion like a hydrogen bomb went off. And 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 I can't tell you how many people say to me, "Could that actually happen?" And of course, you have to you have to actually say to them, well, which part are you talking about, the hydrogen bomb or the fact that a cyborg comes from the future and throws it out the window of a passing car? Anyway, you get my point. But yes, I, I know that the the popular culture has not been kind to that technology. But of course, in the movies, we've also seen plenty of exploding gasoline tanks and, and exploding cars, uh, and yet we still drive uh, we drive those things powered by petroleum. True. In fact, the, in the James Bond movie, uh, Quantum of Solace, uh, it is, in fact, an exploding car that begins a chain reaction. Uh, but I, I won't say any more because that is near the end of the movie. Uh, the, website, <laughs> the website is livespergallon.org, and the book is also called Lives Per Gallon. It is available now, and of course, it would make an excellent Christmas present. It certainly <laughs> would. Give it, to, give it to everyone. As I said, ominous title, but a very happy ending, so it makes good holiday reading. Downright jolly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking with us tonight, Terry. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the great program. Very interesting. Well, uh, we do have one more guest tonight. And uh, a reminder, BC Radio Live is a production of blogcritics.org and is broadcast weekly at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And with Eric and Lisa, I am Philip. 
Uh, one issue that came up frequently during the recent presidential election here in the U.S. is faith, uh, positive or negative. It seems everybody has an opinion on Barack Obama's faith. Uh, fortunately, Stephen Mansfield has researched it and written a book called, uh, appropriately, The Faith of Barack Obama. Here to talk about it with us right now on BC Radio Live. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. Good evening. Now, do you have a do you have a good website for this? I mean, I I know people can go to Amazon and find out about the the book, and and it looks like you blog there as well. Is there any uh, uh, yes, other I, sort I, of site? Yes, they're welcome to log on to my website, uh, mansfieldgroup.com, and I'd love to hear from them. And that's where they can interact with me and read my blog and know my schedule and things of that nature. Very good. So let, let, let's maybe cut let's cut out a little bit of the tension right away. This is this is not a not a book attacking Obama as a secret Muslim. Uh, this this is a, a, a serious examination of his uh, of his Christian faith. Yeah, but of course we all know he's not an American. Oh, will you stop? Oh gosh, you guys are starting off right off the bat. Uh, no, he's, he's not a Muslim. Uh, he's not a Muslim at all. And it's funny, isn't it? It's, the polls still show that about 11% of Americans believe he's a Muslim. But uh, no. But some of them must have voted for him. Uh, I'm guessing. That's what I'm guessing. I, uh, I, I, I think it's a pretty simple thing to dismiss. Even according to Islamic doctrine, you can't become a Muslim until after you've entered puberty. And Barack Obama, even though he lived in Indonesia as a child, never had any formal uh, you know, connection to Islam uh, once he entered puberty. So I, I think that just needs to go away. Yeah. Not, not to mention, just, just as, a, as a footnote, if he were a Muslim, that still wouldn't disqualify him from being president of the United States. We actually have a, a, Muslim, uh, a Muslim man serving in Congress right now, and it, it, uh, it's not a problem except for certain people. So... Uh, yeah, but you know, he he always has to go through the metal detector twice. No, no. Oh. Wow. You know, I'm at a guess now. We're probably never going to have uh, Ellison on the show. He'll <laughs> find that in the archives. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Stephen. We're, we're getting far back. Oh, that's fine. Well, why don't you tell us, um, you know, maybe just kind of in a uh, in a nutshell, uh, the process that you followed as far as doing your research and, and tracking tracking down the faith of Barack Obama, and and what did you find out? What where where do you think uh, in his heart of hearts uh, the role that religion plays, and um, you know what kind of what kind of president do you think he will be in terms of um, the the role of religion and and even I suppose as far as uh, the the age old and always timely issue of separation of church and state. Well, you know, he, he really is unique among American presidents. When he's inaugurated in, uh, in January, he's going to be the first president in American history not having been raised in a Christian home. Uh, he was conceived by two atheists. Uh, his mother married a man who was Indonesian and, in the lightest possible sense, a Muslim. Um, they lived in Jakarta for about five years. Uh, during that time, Barack attended a, a school where he was a, a, a really Roman Catholic school, and he would have studied Roman Catholicism. And then he went to Indonesian public schools where he would have studied Islamic doctrine because his stepfather was, a, was listed as a Muslim. But his stepfather really wasn't a very traditional Muslim. He drank alcohol. He listened to Andy Williams' records. He womanized. He, he even believed that 
if you brought tiger meat home for young Barack, that the spirit of the tiger, you know, would live in Barack. So uh, he wasn't a traditional Muslim at all. And then, of course, they came back, his mother and he and his sister came back to uh, Hawaii when he was about 11, 12 years old. And from that point on, his mother made sure he was exposed to every kind of religion. She was a sociologist and wanted to make sure that her children were well-educated, but she always urged them not to make any religion their own. So he would have attended, you know, Jewish synagogues and Buddhist temples and everything that would have been offered there in Hawaii. But, but again, he was urged to study these, not to make them his own. And so it's really interesting that after he graduated from Columbia and he was around the age of 23, 24, working as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago, that he decided to become a Christian and started attending Trinity United Church of Christ. And, of course, that's the church that's become, become so controversial. So just to put it in brief, I think the best way to express it is that Barack Obama is definitely uh, in, a, in, a, in the Christian fold, but very broadly defined. He's a very non-traditional Christian. Uh, some would say liberal. Others would say postmodern. Uh, he definitely believes the traditional things about Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. He believes he's the Son of God and was raised from the dead and died for the sins of the world. But as he began to sort of study Christian theology, I think he began sort of a picking and choosing process. He, he really couldn't embrace everything that came down through the centuries as the body of Christian teaching. So he definitely is committed to the person of Jesus, and that's what makes him a Christian. But uh, he's definitely non-traditional in his approach to theology, and of course, that's what's stirred so much controversy during the campaign. Fascinating. Well, that was an excellent, that was an excellent nutshell. You just told well, me a lot more than I knew. Uh, I, I, I knew bits and pieces of that, but I, I hadn't heard the whole narrative. So that was very instructive. I, I appreciate that. It really does give me a much better perspective on things. How do you think? Um, I mean, it sounds to me like since he, he's, he made a conscious decision as an adult to, to in essence, become a Christian, um, you know, in some ways, people, you know, uh, people who convert, and I'm not sure you can call it a conversion, but, you know, people who convert sometimes tend to be more zealous than others, although it sounds like that's probably not the case with him. Well, I, I think he's definitely zealous for his brand of Christianity, I think what is uh, creating some controversy on, on the right and some joy on the left is that uh, he's very non-traditional in his approach. But one of the reasons that I wrote the book is that, like it or not, regardless of your religious persuasion, uh, where Barack Obama is religiously is where the country is going. If you look at the Pew Forum studies, and the Pew Forum does the best uh, analysis of the trends in American culture, you find that about 70% of Americans have a religion, but they don't believe that religion is the only path to God. And they also believe there are many different versions of their religion, in other words, many different interpretations. Well, that's exactly where Barack Obama is, definitely committed to the person of Jesus Christ for himself, but he believes other religions are legitimate paths to God. And as I said, he doesn't believe that you know there's just one version of Christianity, so to speak. So... One of the, again, one of the reasons I wrote the book is even if you, he's not your choice as president and even if you don't like him, he, you still have to understand that he symbolizes the religious drift of American society, and that's just something we have to understand. He is symbolic and iconic kind of every direction you turn in, you know? He, I yeah. mean, how, how could all those things come together in one person? And that one person have the wherewithal to get himself elected president. It's, it, I'm still just astonished by the whole thing. 
<laughs> well, I, I think we all know the, the things that are so positive about him. You know how well-spoken he is, that he's a, a handsome man in a media age, that he's Ivy League educated, all those positive things. Um, but, but I think that what is going to be really marked about his presidency is that he absolutely intends to bring his faith to bear on what he does in public policy, uh, what he does in the Oval Office, but he's going to be coming from a very different religious base than George W. Bush. Uh, both men are Christians, but George W. Bush is sort of the traditional evangelical. You know, his conversion experience even involved Billy Graham, you know, when he, when he had a conversion. Uh, Barack Obama has done it more new generation style. He sort of reasoned his way to truth, came progressively uh, to, to the Christian truth that he embraced. But he's every bit as serious about governing according to that faith. So we already know, for example, that he's going to continue faith-based initiatives. Uh, which, by the way, when George W. Bush proposed that, many folks on the left just started screaming theocracy, and yet now Barack Obama uh, is, is saying he's going to continue the very same policies. So he's, he's unique in, in so many ways, but one of the most important is his faith, as I think we're about to find out uh, once he steps into the presidency. I'm very interested to hear what Lisa, our, uh, our, our third member here, who uh, I, I, I'm sure has supported Barack Obama much longer than than anyone else here. I did end up voting for him. I don't think you, Philip, you didn't, right? That's correct. I did not. Uh, but I did, and uh, but I was I was late, very late. I just kind of I was floating. I was floating like a leaf on the stream, and uh, I just kind of never dissuaded. You know, I mean, I was kind of leaning his way, but there were policy issues that I varied on, and ultimately, I just decided. There were things, positive things about him that outweighed policy differences. So anyway, I, I'm pretty sure Lisa's been uh, a, a pretty staunch supporter all along. Although I'm not sure who, who, I'm interested to hear actually who her original, who she was backing originally, say in the primaries. But um, uh, as as we have has heard that she is a, a rather avowed non-believer. So I'm I'm just really wondering how. How all this, how, how what we found out in this discussion fits in with her vision of Obama and and how she sees things going forward. Well, I did support him in the primary, so I've really been on board the I've been on board that train pretty much from the get go. Um, on most days of the week, I would probably call myself an atheist. So I have to say that it bothers me a bit that we actually pay this much attention to the religious beliefs of our political leaders. Um, and I, Philip and I have sort of discussed this casually between us at times. Um, you know, I, growing up in the 50s and 60s, I don't remember religion ever being a big deal the way it is now. Uh, I was raised Catholic. Um, and in the town that I grew up in, you know, people assumed that everybody had a religion, but nobody particularly cared what your religion was, and if you went to church on Sunday, that was your business. And, you know, I, most of the people that I know, um, and, you know, admittedly, I'm, you know, I'm living in this uh, blue northeastern state, um, so maybe we look at things differently here than people do in other parts of the country. I don't know a single person among all of the people that I know who voted for Obama who thought about his religious faith much at all. Um, you know, certainly the the Reverend Wright thing was something that everybody paid attention to. But as far as like really thinking about his religious beliefs, 
I, I, I certainly didn't give it too much thought myself. Um, I think that we put politicians in a very bad position in this country because we do have a religious litmus test for holding high public office, which is that you have to have a religion. It may be mattering less what it is, but I really don't think that a person could get up and proclaim themselves an atheist or an agnostic and run for president. And so what what I think we've done is we've put politicians in a position of having to portray this religious self to the world that may or may not be an accurate reflection of the importance that religion plays in their own lives. And I don't know how you'd measure that in another person anyway. Interesting. What, what are your? I, I, I guess I'm interested. I mean, I, I know that I know that we uh, we shouldn't be talking to Stephen here, but I, I'm interested, Lisa, in that you said that none, nobody that you know considered his religion one way or another when voting for him. And I guess that's curious to me because, um, you know, certainly in the case of President Bush. Uh, to a lesser extent, perhaps, in the case of President Clinton, uh, to a lesser extent even in that, in the case of President Bush, and so on. But, I mean, going back as far as I can remember, which is, you know, basically Carter because I'm young, um, <laughs> people, people, you know, the president's religion has seemed to affect the choices he's made. I mean, it seems like one way or another it would be a factor to be considered. So I'm, I, I guess I'm a little curious about why people wouldn't, like wouldn't even think of it. <laughs> I mean, am I, am I understanding that correctly? or I, I guess what I'm saying is that when I think of, when I think of, you know, whether or not I want to vote for somebody, um, and I'm probably being a little hypocritical here because seriously, I probably wouldn't vote for a person who was a very socially conservative Christian because I know that that would inform their beliefs in ways that would be sort of contrary to my own. Right. But I think that when you when you sort of look at a person's policy positions, I mean, a lot of things go into you know how a person how a person arrives at their worldview. For some people, religion plays a an important part. I think the important thing isn't so much how much of that is due to your faith. I think the important thing is what are your set of values and how are those, how does that worldview going to affect the people around you, either positively or negatively. And I realize that people who are very religious will always sort of interpret that in a religious context, people who aren't, I think, look for other ways of explaining those things, if that makes it any clearer. It, it does to me, but I suppose we should let Stephen respond as well. <laughs> well, I, I certainly agree with Lisa that, you know, when you begin to probe and examine and expect of candidates that they are religious, that you certainly are going to get, you know, a performance from some people. You're going to get a, a facade. At the same time, as I say in, in the Obama book, if, if a person is sincere about their religion, it really is one of the most important things about them. Uh, and in the same way that we want to know about any, 
anything that has happened in a candidate's past. Uh, we ask about their obligations, their debts, uh, you know, their, their political associations. If their religion is a factor in their life, it's something we ought to know. I think this became fairly obvious when Ronald Reagan was sitting in the Oval Office pondering Armageddon and wondering if he might be called to bring it about. Now, when we understand that perspective, and, again, by the way, I speak as a conservative uh, who honors Ronald Reagan, uh, I would like to have known more in advance about what Ronald Reagan believed. Uh, George W. Bush the same way. You know, he's in a debate. Somebody says, who's your favorite political philosopher? He says, Jesus Christ, because he changed my heart. Well, now I think we all wish we'd known more about what his theology, what his religion was. What exactly does he believe about calling, about destiny? Because the indication is that he, uh, you know, has done a good deal of what he's done in the Middle East based on that sense of divine calling. I think atheists and believers alike would like to have known more about that in advance. So the issue for me is not so much that we demand the religious performance from our candidates but that we understand their religion if it's a factor in their life. And Barack Obama came to public life making a very strong profession of a certain brand of Christianity. And I, I certainly think that, uh, that the, the electorate needs to understand it, uh, given not only the times in which we live, but the way in which Obama intends to govern. Oh, well, makes well, sense to me. <laughs> I, I am a... Uh... So as we've discussed before, I was a I, I hopped around with my majors, but I, I had a really strong interest. I ended up uh, in philosophy, political science, and and religion. And so uh, for me, I, I have no problem seeing, in fact, exactly how those three intersect. You know, uh, for me, uh, a lot of religion, at least if I'm studying it, uh, I see from a kind of a philosophical standpoint, and obviously to me anyway. Um, you know, a person's philosophy uh, is central to who they are as a person and, and as a politician. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, it's not exactly the same thing, uh, the parallel uh, into politics, but, um, you know, I, 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 that makes real good sense to me. I'm, I'm interested in them all. Um, I think probably, you know, if we're talking about a person who who chooses um, not to believe, who who decides that they are uh, either atheist or agnostic, um, I I think that space then they they need to fill perhaps with something else, and that's not a bad or, or good thing. Uh, I mean, you know, it's either good or bad. Uh, from a from a neutral perspective, from a third party perspective, but I think, in, in other words, that space is filled in a person with one thing or another, uh, and, and so it's important to know, uh, you know, where they stand that way as well. Because if if they're not uh, choosing to have a faith of some kind or another, which uh, I, you know, I know to a lot of people seems quite illogical, and there's no reason to do something that is illogical and is not supported by evidence uh, or or, or uh, fact. That 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 place in their lives, uh, you know, does need to be filled with something else. And and I know lots of people who are atheists uh, or agnostics who are you know extremely ethical and who are very positive people and. 
you know, who absolutely have, have filled that space in very positive and definite ways. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying anything negative. But, but to answer Lisa's question about, you know, why is it important, I think it, it is important uh, because that's an area that all humans share. And, and it's filled with one thing or another, whether it be religious or religion or something else. Television. <clears throat> or television, sure. Well, let me, let, me, let me ask Stephen a question then, since, Stephen, you brought up the notion that, that Obama came into his candidacy with his, his faith, you know, a very prominent part of that. How much of that do you think might have been a, um, a, a, a response to, or, or, or perhaps a um, something a he thought was necessary. Something that he thought was necessary because of his perceived otherness. Well, I, I think you've got a point there. I, I wonder if Barack Obama would have been as pronounced in his faith uh, had he not run for the Senate against Alan Keyes, for example. Uh, who was very bombastic about faith and accused Obama of being a non-Christian. Um, if you read Obama's books, you know that that, uh, that race for the Senate and the theological issues involved threw Obama into a real time of soul-searching soul uh, that caused him to come to the conclusions that he did and, by the way, to the prominence that he did um, when it came to religion and, uh, and democratic politics. But Obama himself sounded the trumpet call uh, of what we call the religious left, when in his 2004 convention speech he said, you know, we serve an awesome God out here in the blue states. Uh, that was the choice. He wrote that speech himself. That was the choice he made to sort of say, hey, those of us on the political left, we serve an awesome God too, not just guys like Falwell and D. James Kennedy. So I, uh, I got and that, that, that was just, a that was a fantastic speech, and yeah, it really does suggest that his. You know, his his choice to talk about his faith definitely goes back pretty far. Well, I think that he had been hammered by the religious right, and he wanted to make his uh, what he symbolized in American politics to be an answer to the religious right. And so uh, I think, again, that was his choice. If he had wanted to underplay it, he could have. And, I, and by the way, I'm not faulting him for that. I think it's a wonderful thing that he brought that to the fore, and I expect it probably in the coming years. We'll have a lot of theological debates in this country spawned by Barack Obama's pronouncements, speeches, sermons, you know, positions, debate points, uh, because he's a man who's informed by his faith. And, you know, hey, welcome to the great game. Uh, this, is, this is what's been going on in American politics for the last four decades. Now, you, you've previously written books about uh, the faith of George Bush and others. What are some of the, the most obvious uh, maybe, or maybe what are some of the least obvious contrasts between the two men? Well, I think it's very interesting that we're talking about this today because just today I watched uh, George W. Bush as one of, his, one of the many exit interviews he's going to do um, with ABC, and he was talking very much about his faith. And it was intriguing to me how unlearned he was, how, you know, I wrote in my book, Faith of George W. Bush, that, that, that Bush... Uh, had a pretty dramatic conversion experience, and then almost immediately began running for president. At least, almost at least immediately got involved in politics with his father, and just shortly after ran for president. So this is not a man who had a conversion experience and then spent years being taught and tutored in his church. Um, this is a man who had a conversion experience and did Christian growth on the fly. 
And so you, you, you still can hear in what he says that he's rather thin theologically. He's not well, but he's not learned in scripture. He said things that were controversial, I'm sorry, contradictory in uh, this interview. And in a sense, uh, although Barack Obama is a very bright man and did sit in a church for 20-some years, um, Barack Obama is constantly affirming his lack of certainty about certain things as well. Uh, you know, he, he, he made the famous uh, gaffe at the Rick Warren Saddleback Conference when he was asked about abortion. He said that defining when life began was above his pay grade. And, you know, that, that certainly didn't sell well with the American people. So both men are sincere about their faith, but both men confess to being rather unlearned. Uh, Obama once used the word unsophisticated. Um, about their theology, and I think this is going to be a factor. I think that politics nowadays, since Carter, since Reagan, since George W. Bush, forces you to define yourself theologically, and both men have been reticent to do that, uh, claiming that they just weren't learned enough on the subject. And so that's, that's a common area I think that we're going to see continue to be played out in the Obama administration as well. Well, is that – I mean, I, 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 at, the, at the end there you said, for example, that uh, President Bush has – you know, has acknowledged or is well aware of his shortcomings as far as Christian education. I guess I'm not, I'm not sure how much of that I've seen. Uh, clearly, Obama seems to speak with humility and in, in full recognition that, you know, he, he's, he's missing uh, some things about the historic Christian faith or, or certainly it has not majored in it. Um, but I know George Bush is at least often reviled for seeming to believe he he has all the answers when he doesn't. Do, do you think that he actually does have that uh, humility or recognition that Obama seems to have? Or I think that's come into him uh, through the years. I think, I think what I saw on screen today uh, was a man who started his administration with a great deal more uh, confidence, assurance, certainty about what he believed. Um, and I think that, frankly, uh, eight years of a very difficult pregnancy, and some would say a failed preg- uh, presidency. Um, pregnancy, I like that. That's an interesting analogy in and of itself. I pregnancy, no, he's not pregnant. Um, that, they, that, that it has, uh, that it has uh, humbled him and made him less certain. Today he was very cautious. He, he was asked if he was uh, if he believed that God had called him to the presidency. He wouldn't say yes to that. There's no question he said yes to that uh, in his first term. Uh, he was asked if if uh, his reasons for entering the Middle East had anything to do with his sense of God's calling. Uh, he said no, it didn't. It had to do with the military intelligence. The, the, the fact is he very much defended this in terms of. Uh, in terms of mm-hmm. theology earlier on. So, uh, yes, I think you're seeing a humbler man who's taken his licks and uh, is a little less certain and a, and a little uh, smaller in his own eyes than he was maybe four or five years ago. Well, uh, the book is called The Faith of Barack Obama, and it is available right now. It should make an especially good Christmas gift for any, let's say, conservative Christian Republicans in your life. I think that would be just fun. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking of a guy who... Um, I'm thinking of a guy right now I may buy a copy for because he's just—he's still convinced Obama's a Muslim. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for talking with us tonight, Stephen. It's great being with you. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, we have reached the end of the show and run out of time. Do please join us again next week. Thanks again to Stephen Mansfield and also to Terry Taminen from earlier in the show. And, of course, special thanks to Lisa and Eric for hosting the show each and every week. I am Philip Wynn, and this has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room. 
You can watch the live video feed if I said live enough. If you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are available online. Or you can actually subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you automatically each week. Until next week, aloha.